I don't know about you, but for me, at the end of the day, when I lie down in my bed, I, I look back um, at my day. I try to think, you know, what happened today? How was my day? And a lot of times, you know, I feel good about the day. I feel like I was productive. I feel like, you know, I was doing well spiritually. I know I, I was faithful to the Lord. But there's also a lot of days, actually most of my days, are just filled with regrets. You know, I wish I did something better. I wish I didn't say this thing to my wife, or I wish I, I would have treated my kids with a little bit more patience. I wish I would have done this, or I wish I would have not done this. Uh, so there's a lot of, in a way, failures and, and fallings throughout my life, and, and I'm just lying in my bed, and I feel like a loser. Right? I, I feel defeated. It, it's not in a sense that it's just I'm not insecure in myself. When I think about the Lord... When I think about the calling he placed on my life, when I think about the ministry that he called me to lead, and I just think about my day, I'm like, God, how in the world are you going to work through a person like me? I mean, maybe you're, you're, you're really good, and you're perfect, and your life is, is full of praise reports, but, but most of us, I think we can really relate to the fact that there are many times in which we fail, and we fall short of God's glory. And if, if you say you don't, then just read Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So um, that's just the reality of our lives. Even for believers, we, so many times, we struggle with sin. We live in defeat. In Joshua 6, Israel is victorious. They are literally walking around this, this city, and with a little bit of walking, with a little bit of shouting, with a little bit of trumpet playing, this fortress comes down. And because of this this victory, it seems like the people of God, they are invincible. It seems like they are unstoppable because the presence of God is with the people. But you flip a page and you go to chapter 7 and everything goes downhill. It's a completely different story because the people of God, when they go up to Ai, a much smaller, less fortified city than Jericho, they, they go up to the city and they think it's going to be an easy battle. So they don't even take their full troops. And so they go in with confidence, yet they suffer their worst defeat. 38 soldiers are dead. The rest of the army is fleeing from the enemies, and all the surrounding nations are basically laughing at Israel. They think they can take on the God of Israel now. And all this is happening because of one man's sin, Achan's sin. God told Israel, hey, uh, take nothing from Jericho. Uh, but Achan decides that it would be a good idea to keep some spoil for himself. He says, what's the big deal? I mean, it's not that much compared to all that's in Jericho. I'm just taking a little bit of silver, a bar of gold, a cloak. And so he sees what he wants, and he desires it. He, he, he takes it, and he hides it underneath his tent. So it's not the fact that he just stole from God. It's the fact that he was willing to live in his sin despite all that's happening, despite all the warning signs. He was willing to still continue to live this lifestyle of sin and you see all throughout chapter 7, God is waiting and waiting and waiting, but finally it is time to expose that sin. And if you were to pick between chapter 6 and chapter 7, which one sounds more like your life? The, the victories in chapter 6 or the struggles and the defeat of chapter 7? For me, for sure, I can relate more to the epic failure of Israel in chapter 7 than the epic victory of chapter 6. Do you feel the same way? Well, here's the good news. 
Although Achan's story ended in chapter 7, God's story does not end in chapter 7. God's story continues into chapter 8. While Achan was unwilling to deal with his hidden sin, while he was unwilling to repent before the Lord, Joshua and the rest of Israel, when they heard that there was sin in the camp, they were not just willing to deal with this sin. They were willing to do anything to, to get this sin out of the camp. They were willing to deal with their sin at all costs. And it is that type of determination, it is that type of fight that allows them to really expose the sin in the camp. They deal with the sin in the camp, although it's a hard way. They literally have to stone the person who committed the sin. And as a result, by them taking really extreme measures to battle their sin in the camp, as a result, the anger of the Lord, which was upon the camp of Israel in the beginning of the chapter of Joshua 7, is now removed. And no longer is the anger of the Lord upon the camp of Israel. So did Israel sin? Absolutely. Did they pay the consequences? Absolutely. But did God remove their shame and their guilt and their sin from the camp? Absolutely. God's mercy has been working in the camp of Israel. And you come to chapter 8, and it's a whole new story. It's a whole new beginning. Look at verse 1. It says this, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai as, and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourself. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So after dealing with uh, their sin, God promises this, this incredible fresh start, this new beginning for the Israelites. So really the first point I want to make from this text is this. Our God is a God of new beginnings. Our God is a God of new beginnings. The people of God, they sinned before God. They failed miserably in chapter 7, but when they repented from their sins, when they were willing to do whatever it takes to deal with their sins, God not only removed the guilt and the shame and the sin from the camp, but he restored them with new mercies. In Joshua chapter 8, there is no reminder, by the way, of the past failures. There's not one mentioning of the sin of Achan or the, the, the fall of Israel in chapter 7. Not once does God mention the past sin of Israel. God doesn't say, now listen, no, Joshua and Israel... I know, you know, you guys are familiar with AI, and you're going to go again, and you're going to conquer this, this place, but don't mess up. Don't be a fool like you were last time. Like, you know, I'm watching you. No, this time, follow me and trust me. No, there is no mentioning of, of, of the past failures. There, there is no, no dwelling upon the past sins. God is moving on. He says, if your sin is covered in the price of death, then I can move on. I'm not going to linger on your past sins, and neither should you. That's what he's saying. If God is not willing to live in your past failures and sins, if you have dealt with your sins, you should not live in your past sins and your failures. God is giving you a new beginning. Chapter 8 is a new day, a new beginning filled with new mercies. God reminds Joshua of his promises. It's almost a restart because he's quoting back from what he said back in chapter 1. He says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Don't worry. Don't be discouraged. These are the very words that God promised to Joshua in chapter 1. 
when their journey was beginning. So literally, this is a restart, a new beginning. God assures Israel of his promises. He also reminds them of, of his presence and his power. He says, okay, what's ha- what happened at Jericho, it's going to happen at Ai. So he's promising them victory as long as you would follow my word. But there's one thing that's very different compared to the victory in chapter 6. Remember in chapter 6, God told the Israelites when they were walking into Jericho, don't take any plunder. Everything in there, everything that, that's in the city of Jericho, that belongs to me. But here in chapter 8, verse 2, you see that God tells the Israelites, you can take the plunder for yourself. The livestock, you, you can take it for yourself. You can have it. Now, why is that? Did God all of a sudden, did he change his mind? No, we, we talked about this before. We talked about the principle of the first fruit. We said back in Deuteronomy 26, the principle, principle of the first fruit is whenever there's a harvest, because the Lord is the Lord of harvest. He's the one who blesses you to have everything that you have in your life. You work hard for it. You do all things, but ultimately all blessings come from God. So to acknowledge that, God says, give me the first fruit of the harvest. And so this principle is carried out throughout the life of the people of Israel. And so what they do, what they're supposed to do as they're walking into the land of Canaan, this is the first city, Jericho is the first city that they're going to conquer. So God says, give me that first fruit. It belongs to me. I want you to do that, not because I need the stuff, but because I want your heart. I want you to remember that this victory belongs to me and all the victories that are going to come after you, it belongs to me. So with faith, give that to me. And Achan, what he did was, you know, he couldn't wait, he couldn't resist, he was tempted. So instead of waiting, he devoted himself to this plunder, and as a result, he was devoted to destruction. Do you see the irony, by the way, in this passage? The irony is this. Achan couldn't wait, and he took a bar of gold, some silver, and he took a cloak. Things that he thought were pretty good, pretty nice, he desired it. But if he simply waited he would have received a lot more than he ever could have wished for. He would have received more than he could have ever desired. Because not just this battle, but moving on, you read in the book of Joshua, that on on again, after every victory, God allows the people of God to actually have the plunder, as long as they are not committed to to idolatry, as long as those things are not things that were used in, in pagan temples, you know, God says, you can have that. You know, how often do we rush to the things that we want in life when God, he's willing to give us a lot more, more than we can ever wish for if we would just simply wait on him, if we would simply trust on him and, 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 and be patient in our life. Sometimes that's decisions regarding money, finances, right? We want a better paying job. We want to we, want, we need more money, so instead of praying about something, a job, we jump into, into a position without considering the, the schedule, without considering what kind of job it is. We don't pray about whether or not it's honoring to God and how we can utilize this for God's kingdom. No, we just jump on that opportunity because we need money. Sometimes it's with time, right? We, we schedule our days we pack our schedule with different things and because we, we think that we need to take care of our time to be successful in our life rather than trusting God with our success. 
Sometimes it could be our career. Sometimes it could be our relationships. Sometimes it could be our children, whatever it might be. Every single one of us, we have this thing that we covet, that we desire, that, that, that looks good. And we feel like if we just have that, we'll be so happy and we'll be so fulfilled. But God noticed that he's willing to give more than you can actually desire or wish for if you would simply wait upon him. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy to wait upon the Lord. I'm not saying that this process is, 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 uh, is, is walk in the park because we know that Israel had nothing at this point. They were broke for 40 years. They're living in tents. They're, they're dirt poor. And imagine them walking into the city Jericho and all the gold, all the silver, all, all the possessions that they see. I mean, you would want that. They're thinking, we need those things to fight these, these next battles. We need those things to provide for our families. I mean, it's about time. We've been living off of manna for 40 years. It's about time we have some meat. It's about time we have some stuff for ourselves. They could have easily went down that route, but still, they trust the Lord in faith. Other than Achan, they relied on God's provision, and they said, well, this victory, it belongs to the Lord, and as long as we give this to the Lord, God is going to take care of the rest. So you see the principle of the first fruit. It requires incredible faith, but that incredible faith results in incredible reward. By the way, this is why we should start off our week really fully dedicating the first day of the week to the Lord, the Lord's day, right? There's a reason why we set apart Sunday, the first day of the week, because we, we, there's a reason why we close our businesses. There's a reason why we don't work. Although we could make money, we say, God, I give you the first time of the week to you, the first day of the week to you. I trust that you're going to work in the other days, that you're going to help me be productive and do all that I need to do on the other days. This is why, by the way, we ideally would want to give the first moments of our day to the Lord. Right? Before anything that we do, we wake up, and the first thing that we think is, you know, God, I need your help today. I, I need your sufficient grace today. I know that there's a million things on my schedule that I need to take care of. And I can jump right into that, but I trust God that if I'm faithful with my time and I give this first fruit, this first moments of my day to you, that you will allow me to be faithful in the rest of my day. This is why a lot of times we give our first, we give first when we receive a paycheck or some people give their first paycheck fully to the Lord. It's not because, you know, there's this magical formula. If you give that you'll receive something incredible, but it's really out of the heart saying that God, the opportunity that you give me, the body that you give me, the education that you gave me to do um, the work of your kingdom, to make money, that's, that all comes from you. And so I trust that you'll provide. I trust that you'll give me more than enough, that, that more than I need. So I give this to you with a generous heart, knowing that all perfect gift, it comes from you. So we give faithfully the first fruits, not the leftovers, but the first things of our time, of our day, of our resources, simply because we believe in God's provision. So what are you struggling to give first to the Lord? We see that when you're willing to trust in God, and follow his word. God, he gives us a new beginning. God is a God who gives us new beginnings. We simply have to wait upon him and trust in his provision and trust in his word. The second thing I want to highlight is this. When we follow down this pathway of rest restoration, by the way, that begins with repentance, God restores us from our past failures. God restores us from our past failures. Not only does God remove our past failures, or he, he restores us from our past failures. Notice God wants Israel back in AI. The, 
the same place that they suffered the greatest defeat by far. Notice it's, it's the same king that they're fighting against. But this time, God is not silent. He's giving direction. He's assuring Israel that he's with them. He's giving detailed instructions on how to fight this battle. That's the difference between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 7, still, it was the same, the same place, AI, same king, same army. And yet God was silent. God was not with the people of Israel. And so they suffered this incredible defeat. But in chapter 8, God, he's leading the, the army. He is orchestrating the attack. And as a result, you see this incredible victory that comes upon the camp of Israel. Look at verse 2. It says this. God gives the strategy in which Israel is going to take down Ai. He says at the end of chapter, uh, verse 2, lay an ambush, a surprise attack against the city behind it. And really, from here on, the next 27 verses is all about the battle strategy um, that God gives to Joshua and the Israelites, and also how Joshua and the Israelites execute this battle strategy. We have so much detail about how this battle is, is fought. Compared to before, the Israelites, their battle strategy came from themselves. They thought, okay, this is going to be a cakewalk. I can just walk into AI and, and conquer it compared to Jericho. It's, 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 it's no big deal. But here we see that God, he, he is so, he's giving so much detail and so much instruction on how to fight this battle. And this is what basically God says. Joshua, I want you to divide your army into two groups. By the way, you're not just going to take 3,000 men. You're going to take 30,000 men. All your men who can fight. You could take all of them. You're going to divide them into two groups. One group, they're going to walk up to the city of Ai. The other group, they're going to hide behind the city. They're going to be right out of the, the, the sight of Ai. And so the people of Ai, they're not going to notice this. And so you're going to have one group walk up to the city, and it's not going to be a whole lot of people. So the king of Ai, because he's, he's already pretty prideful, he knows that he could he, take, take on you guys, uh, he's going he's gonna to come after you. And when he does, Joshua, I want you to run away. Act scared. Act as if you're afraid. And as you're running away, the king is going to be overly confident. He's going to follow you with all his, all of his army. The city is going to be left open. And that's when I want the other group, the group who is hiding behind the city, to take over the city. And, 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 and as you do that, I want them to light up a fire. And when you see the smoke, that's when both parties are going to attack the, the army of AI. That's the strategy. It requires obedience. I mean, if something goes wrong, Joshua, who's leading kind of that first group who walked up to the AI, he could die literally in that battle. However, faithfully, we see that the people of Israel, they obeyed every word. It says at the end of verse 8, you shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. God reminds the people of Israel, your victory depends on your obedience. Follow every detail that I give you. And sure enough, Israel followed every instruction that was given to them. And it's so ironic. Before Israel, they were overly confident in their battle and they were defeated. Now the king of Ai is overly confident. And that's why he comes out with his entire army to come after the people of Israel. And God uses the very thing against the king of Ai. And now you see that Israel is victorious and Ai is defeated. Everything happens according to God's plan and according to his word. And this is how the battle ends in verse 21. And when Joshua and all the Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. 
And the other came, came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel stuck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. Verse 23, but the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. Verse 25, and all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000 of all the people of Ai. Now, you might think this is kind of grotesque, that this is horrible, this, this is disturbing. I mean, how can a loving God actually, you know, commit such violence against innocent people? But what we see throughout the Bible is the people of Ai, the Canaanites, were not innocent people. They come from the grandson of, of, of Noah, uh, Canaan, who was cursed because of his father's sin, Ham, who defiled Noah as, as Noah was drunk. And so you see that they can't come from the spiritual lineage of, of evil and, and, and disobedience towards the Lord. In Deuteronomy, it's constantly reminded, we're constantly reminded that God says to the people of Israel, offer peace first. And if they don't accept peace, then go and conquer them. So they're it's not here, but there are probably multiple opportunities for them to know that judgment is coming. They are well aware of the promises that was made to Abraham 400 years ago when God clearly said the land is, is, is inhabited by the Canaanites, but one day the people of Israel will return and, and inhabit the land, as I promised. They are well aware of God's power as well. I mean, they saw Egypt, the powerhouse, come down, get destroyed. The people of Canaan, they were fully aware of the crossing of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army. And yet, for some reason, other than Rahab, they were unwilling to repent. So you see that God is not carrying out this judgment based on race, based on nationality. He's simply carrying out this judgment based on how people respond to God. If you are against God and you live a life of sin and you're willing to defile God and disobey God, and live as if he is not the king of the universe, then one day you will experience God's righteous judgment. God is going to wait. He's going to be patient. He's going to give you opportunity and opportunity. But one day that grace will come to an end, and there, there will be credible judgment. What happened to the people here in AI is actually what's going to happen to people who constantly reject God's gracious offer of salvation. God constantly sends prophets, now he sends his son Jesus, now he sends his church. And it says in Second Peter chapter 3 that on and on again, God is waiting, enduring, but there will be a day when his mercy ends for those who, who defile God, disobeyed God, and one day judgment will come upon the people. And that's what we're seeing. This is judgment, but it's righteous judgment. It's wrath, but it's just wrath. It's fair in a way. And just like Achan, who's covered with a pile of stones at the end of chapter 7, we see in verse 27, the king of Ai is covered with a pile of stones. Death, the wages of sin is death. That's the result of sin. It's very clear, Romans 6, 23. But the people of God are victorious. They're not perfect. They're not sinless. But because they were willing to side with the Lord, because they were willing to repent, turn away from their sins, and because they were willing to trust the Lord, and follow his commandments to the best of their ability in faith, in obedience to the Lord. 
what they experience is not death, not judgment, but they experience mercy and grace through and through their lives. From beginning to end, we see God's grace is driving the ship, but also we see that this restoration is happening through obedience. Notice that God doesn't say, hey, here's a new beginning. Just live as, however you want to live. No, that's not the case. What God does is he gives a new beginning for his people so that they can live a life that is pleasing to him. So grace is driving the ship, but, but really obedience is the way. It is through obedience that, that the people of God are experiencing this incredible new beginning, this restoration. It is through repentance and surrender and obedience that God is restoring the people of God from their past failures. And the third thing that we see is this. God restores his people to himself. God restores us to himself. When we walk this pathway of restoration through true repentance, through commitment and, and surrender, we see that ultimately what happens is God restores his people to himself. People who are broken, um, who are living in a broken relationship with God due to sin are now restored at the end of chapter 8. Now the attention of, of the passage goes from the battlefield to the altar to the place of worship. Look at verse 30. It says the people of Israel, after the battle, they built an altar. Verse 31, it says they gave burnt offerings and also peace offerings according to what Moses told them in Deuteronomy. Verse 32, it says Joshua gathered all of Israel and he, he, he wrote down the law of Moses on stones. Verse 34, the blessings and the curse. Joshua read all the words of the law to Israel according to all that was written in the book of law. Verse 35, there was not a word of all the Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. So what is God doing here? He's renewing his covenant. What he's doing is he's reminding the people of God, hey, you messed up, but now you're restored you were sinful, but now you are forgiven. So no longer are you living in fear, in shame, or guilt, but you have my full presence, and you have my full promises. You made a peace offering. You made a burnt offering. You are forgiven, so now you have my full law. You can live in obedience according to the, this law. You don't have to go down the pathway of death. You can have a life. That's what he's giving. He's giving himself to the people of Israel. Once again, when we know that the the victory uh, belongs, the victory that comes in the book of Joshua, it simply comes because the, the people of God are trusting in the promises of God, in the presence of God, with the power of God. So God, as long as he is in the camp, when sin is driven out of the camp and now the presence of God is restored in the camp, Israel is going to be victorious. So the ultimate gift that God gives, that he restores to his people, is the relationship, the intimacy that he allows them to have with himself. And that's the ultimate destination that God wants to take us. It's not just another victory, more stuff in your life. What God wants to do in your life is he wants to restore the intimacy between you and him so that you can experience life as it was meant to be. Now, this passage gives us incredible hope because this means God could take losers, failures, idiots, who lived a life belling against God, and he can turn things around. This means your past failures, they do not have to define who you are today. This means your failures are great, but God's mercy is more. If God is willing to give you a new beginning, don't live in your past. 
move on. Trust in him. Worship him. Spend your time reading, writing, meditating on God's word. Spend your time with the God, community of God. Notice that it's the community of God that's, that's coming together in worship. Don't run away from God and the body of Christ. If you have messed up, if you need new mercy for today, run to God. Be part of the community. Run to his word and experience God's restoration with his new mercies. Amen? Let's pray.